Saints, I've, I've said this before. I want to say it again because it is the truth of my heart is that my desire is to know Christ and to make Him known. Because I know the more that I know Christ, the more that I see Christ, the less I see of myself. And the greatest thing that I can do is reveal Christ to you, to cause you to see Him better. That's my goal. And that's what the, the Word is given to us for as well. So let's dig into the Word to see our Lord. Beginning in verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture. The, le- the verses that are leading up to verse 28 had us focus on the events and the people surrounding Jesus. Those soldiers who threw dice to obtain his cloak. The women who were there mourning. Mourning the suffering of their beloved Jesus. And even the first utterances given by Jesus from the cross when he said, Woman, behold your son, and then behold your mother to the disciple that was standing there with these women. And just as every other aspect of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was given over in submission to the Father and the Word, the things that were said on the cross were done so in submission and for a purpose. The direction by Jesus to Mary and John were given to highlight that which was about to be birthed in the death of the Son of God, the church. We are made to see the importance of the church that was being created by the Word of God and through the Word of God and even for the Word of God. And these events all happened on the day of preparation for the Passover. The memorial, the day that God had passed over those that were covered by the the blood of the Lamb and redeemed and rescued them from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. But that was just a mere shadow of the reality of what was happening and what he was preparing to accomplish here in this moment. And the thing that would be accomplished because of the hour that was upon Christ is nothing other than the fulfilling of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall no longer say to each one his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This was the meaning behind telling Mary, Behold your son. And John, behold your mother. The new covenant was being ushered in through the sacrifice that was being made at that moment and in that place. 
And verse 28 is given us to cause us to shift our attention. Our focus from the events that were happening around the person causing them to happen to that person. The passion of the Christ has been told to us with very little detail. Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And now, in verse 30, the death of Christ. This is not to say that there aren't details given within this account, though. But in every instance, they are given concerning the effects or the outcomes of the flogging, of the crucifixion, and of the death of Christ. The detail that is given to us concerning the sign made by Pilate, when Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, verse 19. The detail concerning the tunic that was woven from the top to the bottom of verse 23. And then the details of the mourners standing helplessly by as the Passover lamb who had been tested and prepared was now being sacrificed before their eyes. Why so little detail concerning this, the most horrible and most evil act ever done by a son of Adam to the son of God? Why so few details concerning the events that are central to our salvation? Listen to verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a, a sponge full on the sour, of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But this isn't the first time that we ever hear of, of Christ, of Jesus thirsting. The first time is in chapter 4, verse 7, when Jesus told that Samaritan woman to give him a drink, which was the catalyst of that, of that conversation which Jesus reveals for the first time that he is the Messiah, God in the flesh, and that all that drink of him will never thirst again, that the water that he gives will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life, verse 14. And then again in chapter 7, when at the feast or at the highlight of the Feast of Booze, when the priests would ceremonially pour out nothing out of their jars at the temple, as a sign of the promise of the pouring out of the Spirit of God, it was then that we are told that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verses 37 and 38. And finally, the answer back to those futile attempts by Peter in brandishing that sword back in chapter 18, verse 11, concerning that hour that was now upon him. So when Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus was thirsty for the cup that his Father had given him. He was thirsty for the hour that was upon him. The hour that he had sweat blood over, that he had prayed to his father in heaven about, when he said, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done, Matthew 26, 42. He may have been hung between two thieves. He may have been the, re uh, the religious leader's intended victim, but he was never a victim. He was always a victor, and he was thirsty for this cup. 
that cup that terrified him, that cup that should be ours. And if we're ever want, left wanting concerning the details surrounding the preparation of the Lamb of God, if we think that we have not been told the thoughts and the emotions that he was going through, if we think that these verses aren't given to us, then we haven't read Scripture. The last statement made in verse 29 is a fulfillment of Scripture. And it comes from a psalm that has been quoted twice before in this gospel. First in chapter 2, verse 17, and then again chapter 15, verse 25. Listen to Psalm 69. And hear the thoughts, the feelings of your Savior as he was being prepared and sacrificed as your Passover lamb. Listen to Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, and I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. They're none. Let those who hope in you um, be, put, uh, be not be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep waters Swallow me up where the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundance mercy, your abundant mercy turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but they found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins continually tremble. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. 
For they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those who you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among their righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hose. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him that sees in everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his slave shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Here are the feelings, the emotions of that man that hung on that cross. These are those details. Here are those details that we thought were left out. The human factor that we were desiring in the telling of the victory of the Savior of the world. And that Greek word that is used in verse 28 through 30, the one that we translate as fulfilled or finished, those words that are used there are different than the other times in this gospel that were used where we're told that Jesus came to fulfill Scripture. Other translations have this word, those words given to us as accomplished, or more correctly, completed. Listen to verses 28 and 29 again, when we, trot, when we swap out fulfilled for completed. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now completed, said, to complete the scripture, I thirst. Our jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is completed. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that word that is translated as completed and should be translated as completed is intentional. Was the work finished? Yes. Did Jesus know that the torture that he had endured was the finishing of the work of the Father? Yes. Did he know that he had to die in order to save us? Yes. But finishing and completing are two entirely different things. In Matthew 5.17, we hear Jesus giving the seminal response to his mission here on earth when he says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And from this verse, we know that he is the fulfilling of all the laws. That the law of God is given to us in the Ten Commandments are still binding and are still our schoolmaster. But even there, in that verse, the word that we have translated as fulfill is the same root word that should be translated as complete. You can finish a job, a task, and not complete it. If you're working a puzzle and you finish every piece that's in that box, you are finished when they're all put together. But if that box is missing one piece, you may have finished it but it isn't completed. 
and the one-word statement that Jesus makes in verse 30, just prior to giving up his spirit, is no cry of defeat, or even that of a vanquished but still resolute rebel. This was a cry of victory. Complete. The work of God that he began when he said, let there be light, back in Genesis 1-3, has now been completed. The meaning and purpose of all creation for all time has now, been com- has now culminated here at this place and at that moment. And it is completed. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is intended. Nothing else is missing. All is complete. And everything was completed to perfection in the person and work of the Son of God. In Genesis 1-3, God spoke creation into existence. And just in the, as in the original creation, God speaks recreation with the spoken word. We're told beginning back in John 1-3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is the life that was in him. This was the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness. And no matter what we see hanging before us on that cross, that darkness has not overcome it. In fact, that light, that life, has overcome darkness through obedience and love to his Father and the word that is him. And at that moment when Jesus said, complete, we are told that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. He was never the victim. Even though to everyone there, everyone looking on, it sure seemed as if he was. And this has profound implications for those that are of him. For those that he has just completed the work of the triune Godhead. Because the world desires that you see you. And that I see me as victims in this life. And when we do, when we see ourselves as victims, the world and its system wins victory over us and makes a mockery of the God that we call the King of Kings. But for the children of God, those that are of this King, that has just completed the work of creation, we are to emulate our King because we are in the King. This is why we are told in Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Verses 28 through 30. But it's when we see ourselves in our King when we realize who we are in this king, that we will no longer see ourselves as victims, that we will no longer allow others to mock our king by viewing us as victims, no longer allow anyone, even ourselves, to justify sinful actions by labeling us ADD, ADHD, ESP, gay, or anything else. We are in Christ, 
And every time that we label ourselves, feel sorry for ourselves, or allow anyone else to feel sorry for us, we rob God of his majesty. The very majesty that he is demonstrating at that moment. The moment when he completes everything in him. Saints, we are justified in Christ, Galatians 2.16. We are sons of God in Christ, Galatians 3.26. We are raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 2.6. Saints, never allow this world to mock your king, your savior, by allowing them to view you as a victim, no matter the circumstances. Know that your king reigns and that he has ordained all that comes to pass for our good and more importantly for his glory. Jesus may have given up his spirit in verse 30, proclaiming complete before doing this. But as we see in verse 31, even in death, Jesus is still reigning supreme master of the universe, and is still in subjection to the word that he spoke into existence. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the sa- for, on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Okay, there's irony within that verse. And not only is there irony, but it's so thick that you can cut it with a knife. This was the day of preparation for the Jews. The day that they completed the killing of their Passover lambs, the preparation for the Passover meal. And then they would rest because it was a high Sabbath. And at the same time they were doing these things, these actions, they had been plotting, scheming, and murdering this innocent man who they saw only as a hindrance and an annoyance, while they were about their work of preparation for their Passover lambs, God had already prepared and sacrificed the Passover lambs. And even now in his death, these Jews, they view his bloody, bruised body as a defilement of their religion and religious activities. John continues in his revelation of the events of this day in verses 32 through 34. He says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But the one of the soldiers pierced his side with with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, verse 34 has given rise to much speculation and proof expeditions about the life and death of Christ. There are many within the Christian community that have written books and spent long hours and made a lot of money in proving through science that Jesus actually lived by this, that the Bible can be relied upon, and that we are not stupid for believing it. But be that as it may, verse 34 is not given to us to medically prove anything, nor is it given to us to scientifically prove anything either, because this gospel is heavily theological and biblical, meaning that most of the details given within it are done so to point out the reality of the Christ, the fulfilling, the completing of scripture, and then the completed work of Jesus on the cross. 
Was there a mixture of blood and water that came from the side of Jesus as he was pierced? Yes. But is this information given to us in order for us to figure out medically whether or not the, the crucifixion account is real or not? No. Nor is this detail given us to show to us that Jesus died from a broken heart. The details are given to us to point to the word, to cause our minds to think of the implication of those two words, blood, water. The blood is most certainly spoken of here to cause us to think of the price paid for our atonement. Because the Bible has been said to be a very bloody book indeed. For almost from the very beginning of the blood is shed as the at the sacrifice of animals in place of humans because of our sin. And Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And when we hear of water, we are meant to think back to chapter 7 of this gospel. When Jesus stood on that last day of the feast, as told to us in verses 37 through 39, and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow river of living water. But it's verse 35 that should catch our attention. For John does something that is completely unique in this gospel, something he's never done before. He reveals for the first time who this mysterious other disciple that is spoken of at the trial of Jesus, the one that leaned his head back on the chest of Christ at the Last Supper, the one to whom Jesus spoke to his mother about earlier in this chapter, that he is this man, the one who John the Baptist pointed to this man who is now dead and proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God in chapter 1, verse 36. It was to John the Revelator he said that. That John, the Baptist, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he spoke of that man hanging there. He prophesied concerning him. And now this John, John the Revelator, the disciple that Jesus loved, gives us eyewitness testimony of the reality of the one that all the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Verse 35, he says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. The verse 35 is given to us to bolster the importance of verse 34, to give weight to this testimony. And not just to the testimony of verse 34, but the testimony of the entirety of this gospel. Because all the other gospels had as their writers men who were secondhand witnesses to the events or at least part of the events of the life of Christ, as in the Gospel of Luke and Mark. Now, I'm not implying or even hinting that this Gospel of John is any more righteous or spiritual or trustworthy than the other Gospels, because the Spirit used the apostles as he saw fit to dictate to others the truth of those Gospels. And even though the Gospel account given to us by Matthew is a first-hand account, Matthew was there, Matthew is never mentioned as being at the trial, or at the praetorium, or at the cross, as John is. John is an eyewitness to all of these events. One of the first disciples called by God, a disciple of that last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. This is what makes John the revelator, John the disciple that Jesus loved, so important and special. He was an eyewitness. He was uniquely ordained by God to be an eyewitness to the last of the Old Testament prophets. 
an eyewitness to the Baptist. And not just an eyewitness, but also a disciple of his. And then, and more importantly, to the one that he, the Baptist, bore witness to, the Christ. And he gives us a summation of the importance of the eyewitness testimony. To all the events beginning with the Baptist and culminating here at this tree. He gives us the reason for all of these events. From the coming of John the Baptist, the miracle surrounding his conception and birth, to the miracle and immaculate conception, birth, life, and death of Jesus. All this happened for one reason. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. The life of Christ was a life lived for the glory of God. His life was fully given over to one pursuit, to one quest. And that quest was to live quorum Deo, in the presence of God. He, God incarnate, was so enthralled with his Father that he committed every aspect of his entire life to this pursuit. This quest was his hour. This pursuit was his cross. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. You may be sitting there thinking, wait, you just said that he lived for glory of his father. And then you pulled a switch there, David, and you said that he lived to fulfill scripture. Now, I can get behind living for that God thing. But all this importance that you keep placing on the word, this seems a bit, well, religious to me. Very constraining. Very Old Testament. After all, I am a New Testament Christian. I'm spirit-empowered, spirit-driven, spirit-controlled, and spirit-filled. The word is fine, but don't you dare try and put my God in a box because he's alive and moving. Well, allow me to show you from Scripture that God is the word and that the word is God, that you cannot separate one from the other. And for this reason, you cannot, cannot love God and be devoted to him and not love his word and be subject to it. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word, right? Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then 1 Peter 1, 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, I want to stop and think about that first Peter verse. Because we have to think to understand just how much the apostles understood that God was his word. That his word was him. Have you been born again? How? Was it not the Lord, the Spirit, regenerating your heart, revealing to you your sin and your need for a Savior? Was it not the Lord who revealed that Jesus is Lord, that Savior that you need for salvation? 
Was it not when you heard of the perfect sinless life and death of Jesus, of his resurrection and ascension, that you repented, believed, confessed? Can you not see how intertwined the life of Christ, the person of Christ, is with the word that you hold in your hand? It was through his life that salvation was accomplished. But it was with his word that he subjected himself to in the entirety of his life. That word that is sharper than any, than any two-edged sword. He lived quorum Deo to such a degree that even after, even after he gave up his spirit, after proclaiming complete, even in his death, even then he was still subject to the word. Verse 36 again, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him who they pierced. And his submission to the word wasn't even limited to himself either. Because all that were involved in this murder, in this mock trial, in the torture, and the crucifixion, all of them were acting in complete orchestration with the sovereign plan and in the sovereign hand of God. Think of this truth. None of these God-haters were acting out of love for God or for this man. They were acting in their own free will and hatred, acting in and for themselves, and yet they were still fulfilling Scripture through their actions. This is the power of the Word. This is the power of the God in His creation. It is said that there is not even one stray speck of dust that floats through the air that God does not have power over, that he does not lay claim to and say, mine. The soldiers who crucified Christ are not exempt from that truth. They nailed him to that tree that he told Nicodemus that he must be nailed to. They gave him the sour wine in mockery to him. And they pierced his side to prove his death. But in another, grander, more important sense, they did these things to fulfill Scripture. Here again, saints, we are to wonder at the God that reigns supreme. We are to wonder at His love, at His sacrifice, and never wonder, is He in control over the events in my life? This is why we are given the reality of God. Why we are given the word of God, the truth of God. That all things work together for our good if we truly are called according to his purpose. But saints, don't think this, allow this thinking to cause you to become slack in your zeal to live quorum Deo. To submit your will and life to the word of God. To think, well, it, your willful, that your willful sin that you're doing that's just happening at the will of God. And he's okay with it. That these people were used by God to fulfill scripture. So maybe it's not that big a deal if I sin. But their actions stood against them on that day of judgment. Just as yours will be. Romans 14, 10 through 12 tells us, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of, God, of himself to God. Saints, if you are a saint, live for the glory of God. 
Give yourself over to the Word. Be in the Word. Be devoted to the Word. Memorize the Word and live in subjection to the Word. May it be the master of your life. And in verses 38 through 42, we're given a demonstration of what links a lover of Christ will go to in adoration of their king. Verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it with linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now wait, you're trying to figure in your head. I just made, you made this bold statement, David, concerning these men loving Jesus. But then before you told us that we should live in open adoration and submission to his word. Well, these things, two things don't add up. Because these two men don't seem to be doing great, they're not great role models for us to follow. Great examples of what living quorum Deo is. Or are they? Well, we don't know much, almost nothing actually about this Joseph of Arimathea, except from the mentions that he gets in all four of the Gospels. It's been widely speculated that he is one of those that are mentioned to us in chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many of ev- nev- nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's not very Christ-like. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus we know something about because of John chapter 3. He was that Pharisee who came to Jesus at night, a ruler of the people, the teacher of Israel, the one that was offended by the reality of who is of the Lord and how they get there, the one after hearing how God is monotheistic in, in the working of salvation could only respond with, how can these things be? Knowing this about these men, makes this section of Scripture a great instruction on exactly what it looks like to be called and to respond to the Lord. Following Jesus when he was alive wasn't a great career move, but many did it. These men didn't. But following Jesus, coming out of the closet as one of his after he was dead, we think that that seems pretty cowardly. That that just seems like, What have you given? After all, the gig is up. The game is over. There's no longer going to be any more challenges or confrontations between the religious leader and that rebel. But in fact, the reality is is that Joseph, someone who had enough pull and high enough connections to go to Pilate to secure the body of Christ, who by this request would be completely outing himself to both the religious leaders and to the Romans, as someone that they couldn't trust, who would go against the party lines. And he would have most certainly spent all of his political favors in this one act. 
because a member of the ruling party didn't do such things. And the fact that the tomb that Jesus was laid in was a new tomb is significant as well. Because Jewish law stated that a new unused tomb could be sold or transferred from one family to another. A used tomb couldn't. It remained in the family that used it the first time. So Joseph, who cut this tomb, whose tomb it was, must have been thinking ahead, planning for his family for generations to come. He had bought space in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the close to Jerusalem. And real estate then acts just like real estate now. With the three things that determine what real estate cost as being location, location, location. So this tomb wasn't cheap to buy or to cut. And once it was used for Jesus, it was lost. It couldn't be used for his family. And do you remember that anointing by Jesus of Jesus by Mary? The one that we're told back in chapter 12, verse 5, where she took a pound of pure nard that would have cost about 300 denarii, which would have been about a year's wages in that time. Think about that. A year's amount of your wages, your savings, gone in one instant. Given over to the sole purpose of blessing God. No memorials, no buildings, no plaques. Just a sweet smell that permeated that room and prepared the Lamb of God to become the Passover Lamb. But this Nicodemus, the one that is painted in such a bad light in chapter 3, he did something that has been wondered at by many. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 po- 75 pounds in weight. What these two men were doing, what they were doing at this moment was considered woman's work in that day since touching the body of a dead man would make them ceremonial unclean for a week. And most men could not afford to be out of the synagogue, let alone out of the political realm of the Sanhedrin for that long. And on average, a person's family, once they died, they would use about a pound, maybe a half a pound of spices to prepare the body with, since they weren't cheap. That Nicodemus brought at least 75 pounds of them, has been attributed to one of two things. Either Jesus was really a fat guy, or Nicodemus being a man. And we all know how men are, that men are, if a little is good, a lot is better. Um, That's what it's been attributed to. But in both of those explanations, the meaning behind the details that are given to us are lost. Because Jesus wasn't a big fat guy. He was so average that Judas had to point him out of a crowd of 12 with a kiss. And if a pound of nard was worth a year's wages, what Nicodemus brought to anoint Jesus with was worth everything that he would make in his entire life. Not a year's wages, 75 years of wages. He, just like Joseph, was laying it all on the line, giving it all to the man who could no longer seemingly give them anything. Think about this. You come to, you come to Christ and you think that you are giving up your old life, giving up your old friends, giving up your old lifestyle, and maybe your old way of living. But you do this knowing that he's alive. And you come with the expectation that he will replace those things that you've given him. And we think that that is a supreme act of faith. These men laid it all on the line for a dead man 
who could do, they could not know. They couldn't know that he would be coming back to life in a couple days. They loved God to the point that even though he could not give them anything in return, the gift that they had given them was worth everything that they owned and everything that they were. And we think that faith in coming to a living God with a record of demonstrated, demonstrated performance in caring for those that are his is evidence of a true believer. And at the same time, are so quick to mock the actions of these two men as being too little, too late. But the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God, had called these men for such a time as this. He had specifically been preparing these men. Their entire lives were leading up to this moment, and their entire lives were for this moment. Jesus had to be buried in a rich man's tomb, in a garden, on the day of preparation, because the word had to be fulfilled. Listen to the word concerning this man and this moment. Listen to the reality of what the cross of Christ was, what the hour of Christ was, what was the motivation for the life, and then the submission of that life of Christ. Listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what, we have, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Have you heard the reality? Have you heard the reality and the truth of who you are? Of the truth and reality of who Jesus is? You are a sinner, a created being made in the image of a God with the sole purpose of glorifying God. And you defy your maker, your master. You are doomed to an eternal hell, the wrath of a just and loving God for this treason, in need of a savior. And then listen to the price paid for this word to be your savior. Verses two through four. For he grew up before him like a plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This was the reality of, of that body, of that man who hung lifeless, beaten, and bloodied on that day. This was a life that Jesus willingly submitted to living every moment of his 33 plus years here on earth. Remember that he was just like Adam except that he wasn't formed from dust, he was begotten by God. But he had desires, he had hopes, and he could have chosen at any moment to follow any one of them and not his father. But verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Amen? And Yahweh has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he, is, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut, out, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the trespasses of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Can you now see how these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, have been prepared for this moment? That their lives, even though they lived them, even though that they had complete control of their thoughts and their actions, were all under the governance and guidance of the Lord? That it would not do for them to come to the realization that Jesus is Lord before this time. That it would not do for them to come out as his disciple until now. The word of God had to be fulfilled. It was and is just that important. Saints, how important is the word to you? If you've been made aware of who you are and who Jesus is and have run to him salvation, how important to you is bearing your own cross? Obedience to the word was his cross and it's yours as well. How are you doing in that? He, Jesus, that dead man hanging on that cross, said, he said that if you are not willing to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his. He never hinted at the possibility that those that kind of took up their cross, kind of made the word the rule of their life, were his. He never hinted that there are levels of discipleship. You know, A-plus students, C-minus ones. You either obey and submit or you do not. And those are his words, not mine. There are those that do not do this and are not his. They you possibly may have deceived yourself into being and thinking that you are a disciple and that anything less than submission and obedience to the, to the word of God is okay. Saints, if you're sitting here today thinking that you're saved because you had a feeling, because I walked an aisle, because I raised a hand, because at that kid's camp, man, after being up for 36 hours and being jacked up on sugar and caffeine, and all of a sudden, that guy got up there and started playing that song over and over and over again. I just had this feeling, and I had to come forward. If you think, and if you are relying on that as your salvation, maybe even because you like being here and are not obeying the Lord in studying to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, if you are not endeavoring to be in the word daily, to allow the word to be the rule over your life, then don't be so sure that you are his. You are not taking up your cross and following him. Does this matter? Well, this submission to the Father matter to the one that, claim, that you claim is your master, your savior? Listen to verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. 
He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Here is the price paid for you. The price paid for your salvation. For you to be purchased from your old master, to be made alive in Christ. And do you not see, even though that the, how the blood washes away your sin, even though that through his stripes we are healed, it isn't the cross or the flogging that was the ultimate pray, price paid for us. It cost Jesus not just his life. It cost him everything. Verse 11, listen to verse 11 of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 speaks of the cup that we are never told about in this passion narrative. The one that Jesus prayed three times to have removed from him. The one that caused him to sweat drops of blood. The one that caused his soul anguish. But he is still in submission to his father. Because he is still the righteous one. The one called my servant here by the father. The one that loves the father more than anything else. And because of this, we have verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Saints, behold the power of the word of God. The power that it contains and it is the, as it is the only means of salvation, the power that it contains as, as it is transformative, it's healing, it's revealing. The power that it reveals as it shows us the essence of the one that it represents. The entirety of the Bible must be read through the crucifixion of Christ. It's just not the climax of the Bible. It's the meaning of the Bible. The life of Jesus the Christ was lived in perfect submission, out of perfect love for the Father. Every aspect of his life was the Word, and for the Word, and to fulfill the Word, and to complete the Word, because he is the Word. Saints, behold the power of the Word. Let's pray.